Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, and at his home in Vancouver is my good friend Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Mike. First take you first take of that you call me good pal. Now it's good friend. Well, you're both. <laughs> good buddy. Good, good mate. buddy. My good I know this guy. His name is Alex, and people who know him will know what I'm talking about. Whenever he sees you, it's like, hey, my good friend, how are you? My good pal, my good buddy. One of my dad's friends was like that. But that means usually that means they don't know your name. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I always I always do that. Hey, bud. Or hey, hey, guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My dad's friend, Mr. Flack, he knew who I was because, you know, I grew up with him. But Any, Anyway, friend, buddy, should we get on with the show? <laughs> yeah, let's what's your, do what's it. What's your name again? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I can't remember my own name half the time. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. On the morning of July 11, 1996, police were called to the parking lot of a hotel under construction off Interstate 40 at 7471 Crosswood Boulevard in Knoxville, Tennessee. There, they found the body of a man later identified as Robert Dennis Blair Adams, 31, a Canadian citizen from Surrey, B.C. 
Family and friends called him Blair. Scattered around his body were personal items belonging to Blair and almost $4,000 in various currencies including Canadian, American, and German money. A black fanny pack near Blair's body was found to be filled with nearly 5 ounces of gold bars as well as gold and platinum coins and jewelry. It was later determined that Blair had been beaten and left to die in the parking lot where he was discovered. It is unclear why Blair was in Tennessee thousands of kilometers from home and in another country. His family later said Blair had been acting strangely and was suffering from insomnia. He told them he believed people were after him and wanted him dead. He had quit his job, emptied his bank account and safety deposit box, and left home for good only two days before his body's discovery. As Blair's significant amount of cash and valuables lay untouched, the motive for his murder remains a mystery, as does the identity of his killers. This is Dark Poutine Episode 304, Unsolved, The Bizarre Case of Blair Adams. Robert Dennis Blair Adams was born in Surrey, B.C. on December 28, 1964. Blair's parents later divorced. His mother, Sandra, later married a man involved in prefab construction and owner of the company Double S Cedar Homes, also in Surrey. According to their website, since 1979, Double S Cedar Homes has built and delivered several thousand homes in Canada and the USA. It has also exported many homes around the world to countries such as China, France, Germany, Japan, the United Kingdom, Spain, and Taiwan. Double S Cedar Homes manufactures the highest quality post and beam homes at a very affordable price. Double S Cedar Homes manufactures residential homes and cabins, cottages, country homes, retirement homes, and laneway garages. Blair would later go on to work at his stepdad's business, working his way up to foreman. As with all of us, Blair Adams was a complex person. After some run-ins with the law and struggles with alcohol, Blair began attending 12-step meetings and sobered up sometime in 1994. In late 1995, Blair worked on a project for an assisted living center near Frankfurt, Germany. During a party in November, he encountered a German woman and they started a relationship. She described Blair to investigators as a kind and courteous man. However, contrasting views later emerged, including from a colleague in Germany who depicted him as aggressive and prone to conflict, noting that he sometimes engaged in physical altercations. Blair's mom told the Knoxville News Sentinel that her son was ambitious and kind, but how he behaved in the months leading up to his death was out of character for Blair. Sandra indicated that at one point Blair was in a homosexual relationship with a roommate. She told the Knoxville News Sentinel, quote, They acted a little strangely and giggled a lot, and it was kind of odd, but then he went back to a heterosexual relationship after that, end quote. Sandra went on to say that she did not believe Blair was suffering from any kind of mental illness, at least none that had been diagnosed. Acted a little strangely and giggled a lot. And giggled a lot, yeah. What does that mean? That's a great question. Well, you know, I've noticed you tend to giggle a lot, Matthew. Tee-hee-hee. <laughs> Tee-hee. <laughs> Tee-tee. Also, one other thing here. 
Yeah. Whenever it comes to to somebody being gay, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like you, you, or you bisexual, read, or bi, or whatever. But what you read here was leading up to his death. Uh, you were talking about behaving uh, in months leading up to his death out of character, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe gay was character. Could have been right. Yeah. Sometimes moms. Sometimes moms don't know. Sometimes parents don't know or don't want to yeah. deal with it. Or yeah. sometimes sons and daughters hide it. Mm-hmm. Right. So when yep. it does happen or when it comes out a little bit, then they're like, it's out of character. When in fact it was in character. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, there was other stuff going on that was out of character. We'll get into that. That and that is definitely out of character stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So in the summer of 1996, Blair stopped attending his 12-step meetings and his behavior became increasingly odd. His attention to work declined, and as a foreman, he was responsible for site security, but had left the work site unlocked more than once. His stepfather and other co-workers have become concerned about him, even suggesting he reach out for medical help, but Blair declined to do so. Blair began telling Sandra, his mom, that he thought people were out to get him and wanted to kill him. When Sandra pressed him for details, Blair clammed up, saying he did not want to discuss it further, but he did seem genuinely frightened. Six days before his mysterious demise, Blair made a significant financial move by withdrawing nearly all his funds from his bank account, removing all his valuables from his safety deposit box, and placing them into a fanny pack. He told his mother he was troubled by something, but again refused to discuss specifics. He subsequently embarked on an impromptu journey to Courtney, north of Nanaimo, on Vancouver Island, aiming to visit his uncle, who unfortunately was not at home. Blair had not called ahead. I'll talk about this halfway through but i'm i'm already worried about this guy yeah i kind of can see where this behavior is going and probably what's causing it because i've had a lot of experience with this and Mm -hmm. i'm automatically sitting here thinking it is really hard to do especially the first time that somebody has a mental health crisis is what i think is probably going to be happening here it's really hard to do to figure it out the first time uh, with somebody second time, third time, it's easy because you, you know, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm already really um, saddened that um, there wasn't an intervention at this point because if, if friends are suggesting medical help, um, there's an issue. Right. And I mean, that, that is an intervention to me that they are they are intervening there's interventions and then there's interventions and we'll 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 talk about that his behavior wasn't to the point where it was concerning enough to involve police or anything like that so hard yeah so that sunday behind the wheel of his chevy chevette blair attempted to catch a ferry from victoria to seattle u.s border agents became concerned about blair during his entry interview He was traveling alone and found to have a large amount of cash and valuables on his person. All his money, jewelry, and precious metals totaled over $10,000. These factors flagged Blair as a potential drug courier. Blair also falsely claimed he had a clean criminal record despite having prior convictions for drug and assault offenses, which became apparent during a quick background search. Consequently, he was denied entry to the United States. Remember when we were crossing that border together for a meetup yeah. in Seattle? Yes, I do. 
So this is the funniest. I have to share this with the listeners. Yeah, so, peep, peep, so, you've shared it before, but yeah. It's the funniest thing ever. Mm. So, so the agent is like, what do you do? And you're like, uh, I do a true crime show. And he's like, what, what got you into that? And I'm sitting here thinking, oh, he's fishing to see if he had a criminal record that made you get into it, right? And you go on about about episode 10 and about your monster and, and potentially being kidnapped etc there's really deep stuff and you go on and on and on <laughs> it's yeah. like, and, and the guy's looking at me like holy shit and then he looks at me like what do you do and i'm like i'm the comic relief <laughs> well i mean i told the guy the truth i know but it was you funny. know he it asked was, he asked and hilarious. i thought <laughs> i thought well here's here's an opportunity to freak somebody out a little bit <laughs> slash get another listener <laughs> yeah Anyway, that was that's uh, one of my great memories of us. Yeah, we had a good time. After being denied entry into the United States, Blair returned to the mainland where he went on a quick series of personal and emotional detours. His first stop was in Vancouver where he met with a girlfriend. This visit was likely a search for comfort or an attempt to find solace in familiar company amidst his growing turmoil. Subsequently, he traveled to New Westminster and spent time with a male friend, and finally, he visited his mother, Sandra Edwards, in Surrey. These visits were not merely social calls. It was apparent to those he visited that Blair was a man haunted by something unknown. Yeah, maybe this was somehow in his mind a farewell tour, or mm-hmm. somehow a cry for help without understanding what needed to be done to, to ask for help. That's right. Yeah. Yep. That's what I think, too. During these visits, he expressed a desire to quit his job, a job he had proudly talked about only weeks before. Blair appeared distressed and reluctant to return to his apartment, opting to stay with his mom in Surrey. In a concerning conversation with his friend in New West, he vaguely mentioned his urgent need to cross the border, implying that his life was in danger by suggesting someone wanted him dead. Again, he refused to give details. Blair went to the Double S Cedar Homes Company office and quit, saying he was unsure he could continue there. He did not wait for his final paycheck. He then visited a travel agency where he laid out nearly $1,700, a substantial sum, to secure a round-trip flight to Frankfurt on a plane that left the very next day. On the surface, this action suggested a planned visit to Germany, possibly to reconnect with his German girlfriend or seek solace away from the tumultuous events unfolding in his life in Canada. However, the situation took an unexpected turn when investigators found that his girlfriend in Germany had no idea that Blair might be planning to come visit. Oddly, Blair requested a refund for that ticket the very same day, saying the person he intended to visit was ill. Oh, I see. So, um, yeah, maybe he somehow just changed his mind. He, he did something that I would do. I would, okay. I, I would lie, lie to a ticket agent saying there was like a death or an illness to help ensure I got my money back. <laughs> right. But, <laughs> you, know? you know, like why he changed his mind isn't mm. clear. Yeah, so, so, she, so he'd never got in touch with her about nope. it. Nope, nope. Okay. So, so, so it wasn't like she said no, and then he's like, okay, then I'll, I'll just... Uh, no, okay. it isn't clear why he was even going to visit, like why okay. he chose Germany. I mean, yeah. you, you, one can infer that he was uh, going to see her. Yeah. It, it is a place that he had been before, so. Yeah. 
In the early hours of the following day, Blair tried to cross into the United States on foot via the Pacific Highway border crossing that links Surrey to Blaine, Washington. However, immigration authorities noticed minor abrasions on his hands and legs, and his appearance coincided with that of a suspected car thief. A blue car reported stolen in Vancouver was found close to where Blair was trying to cross, yet without conclusive evidence to detain him, Blair was allowed to return to Canada. A friend later told police that she had seen Blair driving a blue car in the days before his death, and not his Chevette. Undeterred in his efforts to leave, Blair went to the Vancouver airport where he exchanged his Chevette for a rented Nissan Altima and rather than attempt to board a flight there, he once again made his way to the U.S. border, successfully crossing on his third try. He drove down Interstate 5 to SeaTac Airport outside of Seattle, leaving that rental car in the parking lot. Once in the airport, Blair sought out a flight east, opting for an overnight direct flight to Washington, D.C. Blair paid $800 for a one-way ticket despite the cost being double that of a round-trip fare. Blair landed at Dulles International Airport in Washington on the morning of July 10th. At 6.45 a.m., he rented a Toyota Camry and embarked on a seven-hour road trip to Knoxville, Tennessee. The Knoxville News Sentinel reported that close to Zion Crossroads along U.S. Highway 250 in Troy, Virginia, Blair accidentally reversed his vehicle into another man's car, resulting in slight damage to both vehicles. The other driver later relayed to investigators that Blair appeared amiable, but he was in a big hurry. Blair's mother, Sandra, later told the Knoxville News Sentinel that Blair was planning to attend the Summer Olympics in Atlanta that were set to begin on July 19th. Inexplicably, she had never shared this with the investigating authorities after Blair's death. When reporter Travis Dorman attempted to call and gain more information, i.e. what Blair had said and how she'd become aware of his intent to attend the Olympics, Blair's stepdad answered the phone and angrily dismissed the reporter. Sandra Edwards did not speak publicly about this again and passed away in 2020, so we cannot get more information about this part of Blair's last few days. It's no su- surprise to me here. I think um, her son was killed. She's trying to make sense of things, probably. Sometimes when you're trying to make sense of things, you fall into wishful thinking or starting to like put pieces together that were maybe vague but not really necessarily true, just trying to make sense of it. So maybe it was... Maybe at one point he'd talked about wanting to do it, and and that sort of just connected in her head, right? You can't, like, you can't take what people say, especially when they're distraught like this, at face value in some ways, you know? Mm. The initial sighting of Blair Adams in Knoxville was at a gas station on Strawberry Plains Pike at 5.30 p.m., about 14 hours before his demise. An interstate repair service driver, Gerald Sapp, was dispatched there following a call from a gas station counter clerk about Blair's issue with a car key that wouldn't work. Blair was mistakenly trying to use a Nissan key for his Toyota Camry rental from a different company. Despite Sapp's suggestion to search his pockets for the correct key, Blair refused, convinced he had the right one. Sapp then facilitated towing the Camry to a shop and escorted Blair to the newly opened Fairfield Inn. 
noticing Blair had left his bag behind, which Sapp then returned to Blair before he left. Sapp later told the Knoxville News Sentinel, quote, He didn't appear to be messed up, he didn't appear to be on drugs, but his mind wasn't functioning correctly for some reason, end quote. The Nissan key was later matched to the rental car that Blair had left in Seattle. The key to the Camry was found among the items later discovered scattered beside Blair's body the following day. In the hotel lobby after 6 p.m., the surveillance cameras captured a series of perplexing actions by Blair Adams. For 40 minutes, he was seen entering and exiting the hotel lobby five separate times, displaying erratic and indecisive behavior. This unusual pattern culminated when Blair approached the front desk and handed over $100 in cash to secure a room for the night. Remarkably, after completing this transaction, he departed the scene without waiting to receive his change, indicating a hurried or distracted state of mind. The desk clerk, Tika Hartsfield, watched Blair during these interactions and noticed his agitated and paranoid demeanor. Blair gave the impression of being on high alert as though he was anticipating the arrival of someone who never appeared. This heightened state of vigilance suggested that Adams was grappling with significant anxiety or fear, further evidenced by his failure to make use of the accommodation he had just paid for. He never entered the room. In an episode airing on April 18, 1997, Hartsfield was interviewed by the popular TV show Unsolved Mysteries for a segment about Blair Adams' murder. She said, quote, He just was very nervous, agitated, expecting someone to come in on him even though there wasn't anybody there. I don't know who he was looking for, but he was waiting for somebody to walk in for him, end quote. As we mentioned, it was later confirmed that despite securing a room, Blair never made his way to it. This detail adds another layer of mystery to his final hours, raising questions about the reasons behind his agitated state and what or whom he might have been avoiding. His actions in the hotel lobby, marked by repeated entries and exits, a hurried financial transaction, and an obsessive sense of unease, paint a picture of a man deeply troubled and possibly feeling pursued, though the source of his distress remains unclear. In the hours following Blair's departure from the hotel, additional eyewitness accounts of his whereabouts emerged. Perry Moyers, a detective with the Knox County Sheriff's Office at the time and an investigator on the case, scrutinized two particular sightings reported after Adams left the hotel that evening, ultimately deciding to discount them. At the Cracker Barrel on Strawberry Plains Pike, two female patrons recounted seeing someone who looked like Blair Adams accompanied by another man whose identity remained unknown, remains unknown. The descriptions provided by these women regarding the man's appearance were inconsistent. Police were, however, able to create a composite of the person of interest, but he has never come forward, nor has he been identified. Similarly, Three staff members reported seeing Blair Adams at the T&R truck stop located on Deep Springs Road in Dandridge between 9.30 and 10.30 p.m. They described him as browsing tattoo magazines and conversing with an unidentified individual about Canadian currency. This sighting was unverifiable as no security footage was available to determine if it was actually Blair Adams. 
The next recorded sighting of Blair Adams came the following day when he was found dead in the gravel parking lot of a hotel under construction, the Country Inn, now a travel lodge, just across the road from the hotel at which he'd rented a room. More after a quick break. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts? I've had experience with people who've had psychotic breaks um, mm-hmm. a few times. Yep. And, and, and I think maybe a lot of the listeners who've had experience with friends or family members going th- deeper and deeper into something like paranoid schizophrenia, they might see a lot of the signs that I'm seeing in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've intervened. I've, I've had people sectioned, helped have people sectioned, meaning I've had them taken against their will into a mental institution. Mm-hmm. I've called health units to come check on people to determine they haven't taken their meds, you know. I've been a witness in court for someone who's going to get kicked out of their social housing because of actions that were a result of mental health crisis. So with that experience, and, you know, I'm not a mental health expert, but as a punter who've had experience, who's had experience, it's clear to me that he's in a full-on mental health crisis, yeah. and his actions are there's no sense in trying to make sense of them because they don't make sense. That's right, right. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel really sad for the guy and his family at this point. Me too. On July 11, 1996, when two construction workers pulled up to their job site at 7471 Crosswood Boulevard in Strawberry Plains neighborhood of Knoxville, Tennessee, they were shocked to see what appeared to be the body of a man laying in the gravel parking lot. During an interview with NBC10 News later that day, one of the construction workers said, quote, His lips had already turned purple. We tried to see if he was still alive and needed medical attention. End quote. According to the Post Register, quote, Adam's pants had been removed, like someone else pulled them down, said Knox County Sheriff Jimmy J.J. Jones, who was a lieutenant over the major crimes unit when he responded to the scene, end quote. Blair's shirt was open. Some sources say it was ripped open, but this is unverified. Blair's socks were nearby, turned inside out. One of his shoes was under his head like it had been placed there by Blair or someone else to act as a supporter makeshift pillow. Near Blair's body was a large amount of money valued at around $4,000 U.S. in Canadian, American, and German currency. Investigators determined that a small amount was missing, but those two bills were recovered after a construction worker admitted to having picked it up at the work site. How would they know that something was that a small amount was missing? That's a great question because they never really got into that. Um, either the guy admitted it and they were like, oh, okay, so there was a small amount missing that we didn't know about, or they had some magical way of determining. <laughs> The exact amount of money this guy had on him. Literally, even if they, they saw how much he took out and how much he spent here and there, he could have give, given 10 bucks to a homeless person or dropped some money or bought a pack of gum, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it, I just find it interesting that they, yeah. they determined a small amount was missing and, and, and then recovered it, right? Exactly. Blair's belongings were dispersed around the crime scene. Early in the investigation... Police found the key to the Toyota Camry Blair had rented at the Dulles Airport in Washington. This was the one he'd refused to search his pockets for. 
His fanny pack, laying close by, contained small platinum and gold bars, valuable jewelry, coins, his sunglasses, and some more keys. Blair's dark-colored duffel bag, also found nearby, contained, among other things, Blair's travel receipts and maps. Detectives also recovered his driver's license, passport, and credit card. Former agent David Davenport of the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation seems convinced a vehicle was involved in Blair's demise, as his belongings were scattered over a wide area. He said, quote, They were strewn about a hundred yards from his body, like they had been thrown from a vehicle as it was moving. From foxnews.com, quote, He caught the pavement, Davenport said. If you've ever wrecked a motorcycle, how the rocks or pavement will eat you up, one of his hands looked like that. An autopsy revealed that Blair Adams suffered a fatal beating with the decisive strike, most likely with some sort of metal bar, perhaps he'd been stomped or even run over, causing his stomach to rupture, leading to his death from septic shock. He was definitely struck in the head, looks like he put his hands up and was struck in the hand, and then he went down and looks like road rash, like he was wrecked in a motorcycle, KPD Chief Cold Case Investigator David Davenport said. Road rash injuries could also occur during a mighty struggle while the victim was dragged across the gravel. It isn't clear how this happened. Defensive injuries on his body indicated that Blair had fought his attacker. The most notable evidence found at the scene was a long strand of hair belonging to someone else discovered in Blair Adams' hand. David Davenport noted injuries on Blair that suggested he had been subjected to a sexual assault, perhaps with an object, as no DNA evidence was found to support this assumption. They have held back further details of this for investigative purposes. Toxicological analysis confirmed the absence of drugs or alcohol in Blair Adams' system. He was still sober when he died. As we mentioned, he had no formal diagnosis of any mental health condition. After a canvas of the area, the only witness who reported anything unusual was a security guard from a nearby establishment who recounted hearing a sudden scream around 3.30 a.m., which he believed was that of a female. Subsequent tips have suggested a drug deal or a sex-for-hire transaction gone wrong. The truck stop at which Blair was reportedly seen was well known for being a stroll for sex workers looking for clients. According to the Toronto Sun, David Davenport said, quote, Maybe he got rolled or maybe it was a female prostitute. Maybe she had a pimp that was close by and they were going to roll this guy and they got scared and didn't, end quote. That, that is so heteronormative. So, so, so... And also the words prostitute and pimp are kind of problematic. Right, and, and they say maybe a female prostitute. It's like, okay, or he was gay bashed. So, mm -hmm. you know, if he was in a bad mental state and thus right. not being cautious in a wrong crowd and came on to somebody, mm -hmm. he could have been lured away and beaten. That's right. The, the foreign object insertion rape... You know, believe it or not, is something that often happens or sometimes happens in gay bashings because mm -hmm. there, there's a suggestion of, oh, you want this. Um, so, uh, you know, nobody knows, but I'm just sort of like it, the, the, that line is a little bit limited in terms of um, what it could have been. I agree. It's it's not as thoughtful as I would hope an investigator would be in. I guess this was 2018 that interview so you know D did gays exist yet 
do they now, Matthew? Or is it or is it such some kind of uh, fake thing made up? Christ on a crutch. <laughs> if he had been rolled, why leave all the money and valuables? Investigators surmised that darkness played a part in that. Perhaps Blair's assailants did not see what he had. Another interesting theory is that the money was not what they were after. Who knows? Over the years, much speculation has been made about this case, primarily focused on Blair Adams' reasons for leaving Canada so abruptly. Sadly, this reminds me a little bit of the Elisa Lamb case covered in Dark Poutine episode 36. To refresh, the mysterious death of Elisa Lamb, a 21-year-old Canadian student, attracted international attention due to its peculiar and tragic circumstances. Elisa disappeared at the end of January 2013 during her stay at the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles, a location known for its checkered history. On February 19, 2013, after guests at the hotel complained about low water pressure and strange-tasting water, Lamb's body was discovered in a water tank atop the hotel's roof. Surveillance footage from the hotel's elevator, released by the police and widely circulated online, showed Elisa on the day of her disappearance exhibiting unusual behavior, such as gesturing wildly, appearing to hide from someone, and moving in and out of the elevator in a peculiar manner. This footage fueled widespread speculation and theories regarding her mental state and the circumstances leading to her death. The Los Angeles County coroner ruled Lamb's death an accidental drowning, with bipolar disorder listed as a significant condition. No evidence of physical trauma, sexual assault, or suicide was found. The coroner's report and the circumstances of her death raised numerous questions regarding hotel security, access to the roof and water tanks, and how Elisa ended up in the tank by herself, given the tank's heavy lids and the lack of easy access to them. We explained our theories on that in our episode. The case has inspired various media adaptations and remains a topic of interest for true crime enthusiasts, partly due to the eerie elevator video and the mystery surrounding Elisa's final days. However, we speculated that Elisa was suffering from some kind of psychotic break caused in part by her not taking her medication. And I believe that nothing sinister or paranormal was involved in that case, and we made that clear in the episode. When you covered this show... Um you know, you didn't say it was anything paranormal. And I, and I think right. you and Morgan on your other show talked about that as well. And which, and I'm glad because... We try not to, you know, sensationalize things and say, oh, it's a ghost. Like we, no, we want to, no. we, we ask questions. Like that's, exactly. that's what that's it, about. It, and that's important. But, you mm. know, so much of the coverage that, that you didn't do, Mike, was about the paranormal and yeah and i actually think when or or that somebody was chasing her and all this kind of stuff and i think this paranormal stuff especially you know really does a disservice to people who are suffering from mental health issues i I was like Mm -hmm. it's right in front of you that this woman needs help and you're all oh it's a ghost or a goblin it's like get real get educated and help people right right anyway off, so, off my podium now. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so Blair's case is different in that evidence does not point to murder. However, his presence in Tennessee could have been solely due to a psychological break. 
often alcoholics, as Blair admittedly was, have co-occurrence of mental illness along with their substance use disorder. The occurrence of mental illness and alcoholism or dual diagnosis is notably frequent with individuals suffering from alcohol use disorder, AUD, exhibiting a higher prevalence of mental health disorders compared to the general population. Mood disorders like depression and bipolar disorder, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, and certain personality disorders, such as borderline and antisocial personality disorder, are prevalent among those with AUD. This relationship is often bidirectional with alcohol used as a form of self-medication to alleviate symptoms of mental illness despite ultimately exacerbating conditions. Factors contributing to this co-occurrence include genetic vulnerabilities, neurobiological influences, and environmental stresses, which collectively highlight the complexity of these interlinked conditions. Effective treatment for dual diagnosis requires an integrated approach, simultaneously addressing both the mental health disorder and alcoholism through a combination of medication, psychotherapy, and support systems to improve treatment outcomes. While Blair Adams had not been diagnosed with any form of psychological disorder, it is also common for these types of issues to go undiagnosed even long into sobriety for some alcoholics. I can speak to this personally. I have a mental illness that I self-medicated with alcohol and substance addiction, chronic depression. When I got sober, I came to the conclusion that sobriety and recovery meetings were all I needed, and I suffered unnecessarily for years. Decades later, when the pain became unbearable, I sought medical help, and a new level of recovery began. This is before this show existed. I was not in a good headspace, even sometime into this show. (laughs) (laughs) And see, you know what, Mike? Friends like you are so special. You have this weird brain that I friggin' love, <laughs> right? I definitely have a weird brain. And and a lot of my friends are slight oddballs in one way or the other, and it's what makes you you, but uh, that sort of brain can also monkey wrench itself, right? And, oh, and I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm so happy that uh, you unmonkey wrenched yourself to <laughs> be this lovely human. Well, uh, I'm continually, one day at a time, unmonkey wrenching. <laughs> Uh, you know, I still need help. I still need help every day. Anyway, it's a good thing. It's, I'm glad I know what's going on. (laughs) Or at least I have some semblance of an idea of what's going on. What's that old Virginia Slim's ad campaign? You've come a long way, baby. I guess so. (laughs) I don't smoke anymore either, so there's that. (laughs) That's, uh, I think, key to your health as well. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I gotta stop eating now too. Not not like fully stop, but like no stop overdoing it. <laughs> it was noted that Blair stopped going to twelve step meetings before his bizarre behavior became very concerning to his loved ones. And this might have been his only means of support at the time, as it was for me for all those years. The cessation of twelve step program meetings can significantly impact those battling alcoholism, leading to a variety of challenges. The loss of these meetings can intensify feelings of isolation as individuals miss out on a community that offers understanding and shared experiences. It might also undermine accountability, crucial for maintaining sobriety, and diminish motivation as peers' positive reinforcement and encouragement become absent. 
the structured environment provided by 12-step meetings, which helps individuals prioritize sobriety and develop healthy coping mechanisms, is lost, potentially leaving them without direction or effective strategies to manage cravings and triggers. This lack of support and structure can escalate stress, anxiety, and depression, or other psychological issues, elevating the risk of relapse. For alcoholics, putting the plug in the jug, simply not drinking, is not enough. The goal is to achieve not just physical sobriety, but also emotional and psychological wellness, moving beyond the mere absence of alcohol to a more fulfilling and balanced life. Personally, if I don't do daily what I need to do to stay sober, I can begin to think and act bizarrely myself. This can eventually lead to something commonly called a dry drunk. Dry drunk syndrome is a term often used to describe individuals who have stopped drinking alcohol but still exhibit behaviors, attitudes, and emotional issues that were present during their time of active alcohol addiction. Although they are not consuming alcohol, they may struggle with the psychological aspects of addiction such as anger, resentment, mood swings, and a sense of dissatisfaction with life, restless, irritable, and discontent. This condition highlights the importance of addressing not only the physical dependency on alcohol, but also the underlying emotional and psychological issues that contribute to addiction. Critical characteristics of dry drunk syndrome include difficulty in dealing with emotions, exhibiting negative behaviors such as selfishness or impulsivity, longing for the drinking lifestyle, and struggling with sobriety because the root psychological issues have not been addressed. Treatment and management of dry drunk syndrome often involves therapy, support groups, and developing healthy coping mechanisms to deal with life stresses without resorting to booze again. Perhaps Blair felt he could go it alone, the stress of which eventually led to his psychological issues. This is not meant to shame or blame Blair in any way, as I too have been guilty from time to time of trying to fix my broken mind with my broken mind. Just doesn't work. But seeing that when you're deep within it is almost impossible. I don't believe there's any mystery about what led Blair to where he was, but someone out there knows what happened. This case remains unsolved. Anyone with information on Blair Adams' death can call the Knox County Sheriff's Office uh, Office's Cold Case Unit at 865-215-2675 or email coldcase at knoxsheriff.org. Just uh, a side note. Blair Adams is buried 16 kilometers from the Dark Poutine Studio in the Victory Memorial Park at 14831 28th Avenue in Surrey. His simple grave marker includes only his name, birth date, date of death, and the inscription, Au Bon Dieu. The rough translation is, To the Good Lord. Ah, this is, this makes me sad. This guy shouldn't have died this way. And I really wish he could have got the help that he needed. So yeah. he, so he wasn't in that dangerous situation with the very bad people who did this to him. Yeah. Before we get to voicemails, patron and donut money donors, we want to give a brief update on the case of Byron Howard Carr. And we covered his unsolved murder 
in episode 222. And a refresher, uh, Byron was a teacher from Prince Edward Island who was gay. His family found out after his death um, and was murdered. And the case had gone unsolved for a number of years. Well, there was a break in the case. So here's some audio recorded by Global News of a recent news conference held by Charlottetown Police regarding significant developments in the case. On November 11, 1988, Byron Carr was murdered in his home here in Charlottetown. Byron was a loving son, brother, and a friend to many. He was a respected teacher, a good neighbor, with a good sense of humor. He loved his dog, Robert. His tragic death shook our city and province to its core. A note left at the crime scene read, I will kill again. Unsolved for over 35 years, Barnes' murder has caused trauma to generations of Islanders. Nobody more impacted than his family and Barnes' friends in the gay community. Yes, Barnes was a gay man a secret he kept from many people. A revelation only brought light to his tragic death. Barnes' death occurred during a dark and unfortunate time in our province's history, when members of the LGBTQIA2S plus community did not feel welcomed or accepted, forcing many like Barnes to socialize in the shadows and take unnecessary risks. At 11.55 a.m. yesterday morning, the Charlottetown Police Services arrested Todd Joseph Gallant, age 56, of Surrey, as we have significant forensic evidence to believe he is responsible for the death of Byron Carr. Mr. Gallant, who also uses the name Todd Joseph Irving, was 20 year, 21 years old at the time of the murder and believed to be living in the Charlottetown area. This morning, an information was filed at the provincial court charging Todd Joseph Gallant, also known as Todd Joseph Irving, with one count of first degree murder and one count of interfering with human remains. Yesterday morning, a second individual was also arrested in connection with this case. However, that individual was released late yesterday afternoon. Our investigation continues to determine what, if any, involvement this individual had in the activities involving Byron Carr's death. We will not be releasing any identifying information about that person at this time. The scope of this investigation has been extensive. We have leveraged advanced DNA testing and investigative genetic genealogy to lead us to the arrest of Todd Joseph Glant. Whew. So what do you think? I find it good that in a press conference, he's calling out that society and the police failed gay people back then. 
Mm -hmm. when people feel like they're forced into needing to hide who they are uh it creates more risk for them Mm -hmm. and and in fact i think it's the same thing with sex workers right the make having sex worker whatever being illegal um it, it just it 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 puts more people in danger when society isn't accepting um and it's just uh it made me sad it made me sad to think that you know we've come a long way um and it just makes me think of all all the young people that have have been beaten up or killed or mm -hmm. lots of things done to them um because they were thought of as lesser uh, right. by by society. It's interesting how this update sort of ties to the main case that we covered today, too. It potentially does. And and mm -hmm. I just find it fascinating that the case that we covered today, like, there's just sort of that sort of that clear statement of it could have been, he could have been with a female prostitute, right? Right. Um, and the pimp, it's like you, you're, you have your blinkers on, man. Yeah. Right. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done, and mm -hmm. uh, indeed, if this person is uh, found guilty, um, that makes me happy. Yeah. Well, he does look like a pretty hard man, and I'm not saying how you look makes you guilty of anything, but uh, the the picture that <laughs> that was posted on in the Global News article, uh, this guy does not look like a friendly gentleman. If you know what I mean, just you could see the years of of hardness on his face. Mm. Anyway, and that's it for Dark Poutine episode three hundred and four, unsolved: the bizarre case of Blair Adams. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. As far as voicemail goes, we don't have any this week. So don't forget to call us if you want to, because you might hear your own voice on the show. We'd really like to hear from you. I don't like not having a voicemail or two. Come on. Call in. Yes. Call us make, up. I, I won't make fun of you too badly. Matthew won't make fun of you too badly. If, there are if, thousands fact, of you. There are fact, thousands of you. <laughs> there are thousands of you that listen every week, so one or two can call. Come on. It's yeah, toll free in the US and Canada. Come, Come on. on. Here, get it, get it, get it, get it. Here. <laughs> oh well. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. We don't have any new patrons this week, but we do have a donut money donor, and that person's name is Tim Noble. Tim says, 
I'm not Canadian, and I have only visited Canada twice in my life, but something about the cases you cover and the way you write about and discuss them really creates a strong sense of place and consistency and consistently draws me in. The two of you have a great chemistry, and it's always a pleasure to listen to you on my regular evening walks by the North Sea. Keep up the good work and go take a shit in your hats. Tim Noble, Color Coats, Cool, uh, color, co- color, co- color coats, color coats, UK. So he's in the United Kingdom. Color coats. C U L L E R C O A T S. Color coats. Yeah, it could be uh, color color cuts. Maybe time side. Mm-hmm. Timeside, North Timeside. That's great. Um, so, what do you well, think Tim Noble does up there? Uh, well, thank you for the noble gesture and sending us donut money. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And I'm picturing with with a dog walking, maybe a Vizsla. Do you know what a Vizsla I know is? what a Vizsla is. Yes, I do. Yeah. I think he's a Vizsla breeder. Really? Because I'm picturing him. Walking they're a the, pretty dog, yeah. They're gorgeous dogs. A, a, a friend of mine in the UK as well has one, and she's always on the moors, and she does a, the spot the Vizsla, so she takes a picture of the moors, and the dog's far in the distance. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because yeah, so they are very active and crazy. So, yeah, so I think he's he's a Vizsla breeder and shower. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tim. Uh, it's always nice to hear from people so far away that uh you know come visit canada a few more times absolutely come on to vancouver you're welcome we'll we'll take you out for lunch you're welcome anytime yeah right (laughs) we can't take everybody out for lunch but we'll take tim for lunch especially if he comes all the way from (laughs) color cuts color coats i don't know how you promised me a lunch i'm here (laughs) (laughs) exactly anyway uh thank you all Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us Donut Money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And uh, that's it for this episode. So until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Until we meet again, I don't know how, don't know when. Okay, Vera Lynn. <laughs> I love Vera Lynn. I do too. My grandma's name was Vera, so that's kind of why that song is special to me too. Okay, well, put her on and well, she'll sing us out. Bye. I I can't do that. That's copyright violation but i know that's why i'm singing it okay bye everybody bye everybody <laughs>